you're listening to the Word of Life AG podcast. We're so glad you're getting caught up on the message. Today, we continue our summer sermon series, I Am, with a message from Pastor Tom Wood titled, Vine. Let's check it out. Good morning, Word of Life. It's great to be able to come and hang out with you. Welcome to everyone watching online. And just so you know, if I seem disorientated, it's because for some reason, a bunch of you have decided to sit in different spots this week. So yes, Quinn family, I'm looking at you. So if I seem thrown off, that's why. But anyway, that's not why you're here today to hear me rambling about this kind of nonsense. Anyway. We are uh, coming towards the tail end of a series that we started at the beginning of the summer looking at the I am statements of Jesus. And so in John's gospel, there are seven different times where Jesus will say, I am something. And so we spent the summer kind of looking through each of those uh, and really kind of the weight of that phrase, I am, it stems from the Old Testament. Uh, If you were here for week one, um, hopefully you remember and it's somewhere in your mind that uh, when the Lord came to Moses and said, you need to go back and you need to go back to Egypt and rescue the people. I'm going to use you to bring them freedom. And he introduced himself as I am. And so for Jesus to say, I am, that carries a lot of weight. It's a a packed statement for Jesus to say, I am, and then for him to say, I am something. There's uh, hopefully, I think there's been some helpful stuff as we've gone through those. And today we are continuing that. uh, And it's the last of the seven I am statements. And then next week, we're going to finish the series by looking at I am not. So um, we'll look forward to that hopefully next week. So sound like a plan? Amen. So, so far in the series, we've looked at, uh, I am the bread, I am the light, I am the gate, I am the shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth, and the life last week, and then this week we're looking at, I am the vine, and this is the last of the seven. Now, one thing I can say with absolute certainty, if you're in this place today, if you're watching online today, you are well aware that we have Fall Fest coming up. I'm going to guess, that has not escaped anyone's attention that we have this thing coming up on September 11th. Can I get an Amen. Now, one thing I realized, uh, and I think is helpful as we plan out, uh, you know, all the things that the church is doing, is that even though January 1st is the start of the year, truthfully, everything gets back to normal in September. In September, there's kind of like that reset of, you know, kids are back to school, all the summer stuff is done, and so there's kind of like a, you know, reset of our clock, you know, our internal calendar, and so that's why we want to start off big, and we want to say, you know what, let's go, let's get this year off to a great start. So we're doing that in September rather than in January, and coincide with that is that after Fall Fest, so as we get into the middle of September, we're going to take a few weeks, not sure if it's going to be two or three yet, we're going to take a few weeks just looking through some of the um, vision, mission, the culture of the church, just to kind of put some vision out of this is the kind of church we are. This is what we believe the Lord's going to do in the next 12 months. So we're looking forward to getting into that. And something that I want to look at more in depth then, I believe is sort of part of uh, the root of the, the message today. So I'm going to sort of go into a little bit of it. But as we fast forward a couple of weeks, we're going to look at this a bit more. But I simply want to say that church leaders, including myself in this, are often tempted to promote the church instead of preaching Jesus. See, oftentimes with good motives, we tell people that adding church to our calendar is worthwhile. We promise that coming to church is beneficial. And without realizing it, we can be occupied trying to sell people on the benefits of church attendance, and we accidentally minimize the importance of the message we're called to preach. The message of Jesus is a message concerning life and death. It has eternal consequences. It affects every person everywhere ever. The grace of God is free, but it's not cheap. 
So presenting church as simply something else that's worthwhile to add to our busy schedules is a strange undersell. The good news, and we'll find this as we get into the final I am today, the good news is truly life-changing. It is the most important message anyone can ever share with anyone ever. It is the good news that we can have eternity with the Lord. It is good news that we can have, heal that broken relationship with God. And as we get into this today, I believe that we'll see the importance of this message. We look at what Jesus had to say in John 15. And John 15, it's a part of the farewell discourse. I hit on this briefly last week. But if you look, there are four chapters in the Gospel of John where after Jesus has washed the disciples' feet, they've had the Last Supper together, Judas has left to betray him, and then Jesus starts giving a, an incredible long passage of teaching that is spread over uh, John 14, 15, 16, 17. And so if you have one of the Bibles where the words of Jesus are in red, those four chapters are almost all red. And so this incredibly long passage of teaching that Jesus has as he's getting ready for crucifixion. And he's passing on this farewell discourse, disciples, before I go, I need you to know this. And so the passage we're going to be in today is a small portion of that long passage of scripture known as the farewell discourse. So we're going to be in John 15, starting in verse 1. Everyone feel good? You all ready to go? John 15, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, you uh, in you ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Now there's a lot in this passage and we're going to cover a lot of content today. I hope that's okay. But I believe there's some really helpful stuff for us in this. The first thing is in this analogy that Jesus uses by being the vine and you are the branches. My father is the gardener. It's those three roles that he points out. The vine, that's Jesus. The gardener, talking about the father. And the branches, that's the believers. And the vine is a picture of something that's growing. It's full of life. Just recently, Megan and I were at uh, someone's house. And we're on their back deck and they were complaining because they had a vine that was growing and it didn't matter how much they tried to prune it back, it didn't matter how much they tried to take care of it, the vine kept growing in places they didn't want it to grow. But that's the picture that Jesus is pointing. Not that it's growing in annoying places, but it's full of life. That it's growing, that it's healthy, that there's something going on here. That's the picture that we're getting at, that I am the vine. We're also told that the Father is the gardener, keeping the vine healthy and producing fruit. And the branches, the part of the vine where we get the fruit from. And it's worth noting here, and this is important for us to remember, this is good, that Jesus does not say that he is the stem and we are the branches, but rather he is the whole vine, both stem, roots, branches, and as his followers, we are included in him. The life of the branch is found in the life of the vine. The branch has no life of its own, and the father as the gardener is committed to maintaining the health of the branches. 
Now, the vine as an analogy was pretty common around the time where uh, Jesus was ministering and the place where Jesus was ministering, largely because the only fruit trees that were uh, widely planted in that region were vines, which we're talking about today, but also fig trees and olive trees. Those are really the only three fruit trees that would do well in that kind of terrain. The branches of the vine were completely dependent on the vine for life. If the wood is dead, it's clear that there's no life-giving connection to the vine. And if unpruned, the dead branches absorb the resources that should be preparing fruit. The gardeners, they all knew that the vine, compared to other plants and other trees, they required more work and more attention. When first planting, they had to be tied to supports, usually wooden posts that had to be put in so that they stayed upright. In the summertime, the farmers would have to break up the soil around the roots to selectively prune the shoots that often coiled and slowed growth. And there was ongoing pruning and seasonal care. It was slow and ongoing for long-term gain. For a literal vine, and in the analogy that Jesus is making, this is all about the fruit. The purpose of the branches was to produce fruit. The only evidence the branch was alive was the fruit. Without the fruit, it was certainly not connected to the life of the vine. So a good question for us is, what does the vine represent? Jesus starts this off with, I am the true vine. The fact that he said that I am the true vine, it indicates that he's trying to get us to compare and contrast to something. I am the true vine compared to what? There's a similar way that Jesus said, I am the true bread from heaven. And he was making a comparison to the manna that we read about in the book of Exodus. I am the true vine. By Jesus saying true, he's inviting us to ask, well, what are we, what's our current concept of what a vine is? Now, it's possible that what Jesus has in mind and what he's anticipating the listeners to this to have in their mind is Greek mythology. Greek mythology, these stories of all the, you know, the Greek gods, Olympians, and all so on and so on. The idea that this would be in their mind, that's possible. It's more likely that this was spoken and Jesus gave the farewell discourse while walking. Now, roll with me for a second. They're in the upper room. They wash feet. They have supper together. Judas gets up and leaves. And then Jesus starts initiating this teaching, but it's not in the upper room. I'm going to stand up and talk. But it's possible that Jesus invites the disciples, come on, let's go. And then as they are walking together, Jesus teaches. Now, what that means is that if Jesus is walking with the disciples from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane, they are walking past literal vines. And Jesus is pointing to the vines that are there. That's possible. Another possibility is that in the temple, there was a golden vine that was hung in the temple. I want to read this to you. This is one of the commentaries I read this week. I thought this was fascinating, so I'm happy to share this. If Jesus left the upper room in John 14:30, he may have stopped at the temple to teach and to pray. At the entrance of the holy place, west of the altar, steps led to a linen curtain covered with purple, scarlet, and blue flowers. Solid gold chains hung alongside the curtain from the door beam. Above the curtain, beneath the roof line, grew a gigantic grapevine of pure gold, representing Israel. Wealthy citizens could bring gifts to add to the vine, gold tendrils, grapes, or leaves. And these would be added by metal workers to the ever-growing vine. Josephus, a first-century Jewish historian, claims that some of the grape clusters were the height of a man. The vine and the vineyard were old and sacred images in Judaism, as in most Mediterranean societies. The vine represented the covenant people of God, planted and tended by him so that Israel would produce fruit. And I even have a couple of pictures 
of uh, artist impressions, what they believed this would be like. And so there you kind of see the, the ornate chains that hung and then these uh, grapes and the branches that were kind of woven in and you kind of see the men that are there as a size comparison. There's another one as well of what it looked like on the inside. And so you kind of see again this you know, solid gold that's there representing the vine to act as a visual reminder. And it's possible that if Jesus is indeed walking as he's given this farewell discourse, that his travels are taking him past the temple. And when he gets to the temple at the specific gate where this is happening, with that in the background, he says, I'm the true vine. This vine here that represents Israel, yes, it has meaning. I'm the true vine. This visual that you have, I'm the true vine. Now, in all we could look at with the idea of Israel being the vine, which is what the gold vine represents, there's a psalm that keeps coming up in my reading this week. I want to share with you this portion of this psalm. Psalm 80, starting in verse 7. Turn us again to yourself, O God of Hamad's armies. You'll see as we go through this that this psalm is obviously written during a tragic period of Israel's history. Make your face shine down upon us. Only then will we be saved. You brought us from Egypt like a grapevine. Talking about the Exodus. You drove away the pagan nations and transplanted us into your land. You cleared the ground for us, and we took root and filled the land. Our shade covered the mountains. Our branches covered the mighty cedars. We spread our branches west to the Mediterranean Sea. Our shoots spread east to the Euphrates River. But now why have you broken down our walls so that all who pass by may steal our fruit? The wild boar from the forest devours it, and the wild animals feed on it. Come back, we beg you. O God of heaven's armies, look down from heaven and see our plight. Take care of this grapevine that you yourself have planted, this son you have raised for yourself. For we are chopped up and burned by our enemies. May they perish at the sight of your frown. Strengthen the man you love, the son of your choice. Second time we see the word son. Then we will never abandon you again. Revive us so we can call on your name once more. Turn us again to yourself, O Lord God of heaven's armies. Make your face shine down upon us. Only then will we be saved. Now this psalm was clearly written during a tragic time of Israel's history. But it's easy to see divine imagery coming back again and again. The nation of Israel was taught to live and embrace the qualities of a vine. Something fruitful and healthy. Something that grows and brings joy. The golden vine at the temple was there to remind them of this commitment. Psalm 80 is pleading with God to help the nation be a healthy vine again, to be full of life. And with all that as the backdrop, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Because of the word I've spoken to you, you've already been cleaned. You've already been a part of this pruning process that Jesus is teaching about. When I read that this week, I was reminded of a time in Bible college. And in Bible college, I once tallied up that I was in church eight times a week. And when I say eight times a week, I mean that we had a chapel together. We were part of youth services. We had men's ministry. We had um, three weekly services that were all different in our church then. Uh, and so collectively, that was eight different church services we were in a week. On top of that, we were also in lectures every day learning Bible. That's a lot of Bible. That's a lot of word of God that has been spoken to us. Now, in James, it says in uh, chapter 123 that the word of God is like a mirror. 
And the point of that scripture from James is once you've got the word of God in front of you and it's reflecting back God's perspective, when you're projecting yourself into the mirror, into the word, and what you get back is God's perspective. Now you have a responsibility to adjust. Now, when you're listening to eight different sermons a week, you're in classes day in, day out, going through all kinds of different Bible study. That's a lot of mirror. That's a lot of invitation to adjust. And what I found unanimously talking to friends of mine and roommates that I lived with in Bible college, everybody felt this real challenge to adjust and sharpen up and let go of bad things and let go of bad habits and let go of destructive things that was in our life. It was so evident to us that just being exposed to the word of God as frequently and as often as we were, there was challenge after challenge. And all of us, sometimes we felt beat up in the best possible way because God was pruning and God was working and getting rid of junk that was in our lives. Psalm 119, some of you know this verse well. How can a young person stay pure? By obeying your word. Paul writing this, talking about the church that the church is washed by the cleansing of God's word. And what I want to say and what I believe wholeheartedly, and it's not the first time you've heard me say this, if we're going to be a church that rises up, we're going to be a church that sees God do a powerful move in central New York, we will not do it if we are not a church based in the Bible. We are a Bible-believing church, which means we need to be a Bible-reading church. Take this... In the last 10 or 15 years, just my observation in churches working with people, it used to be so much more common to hear believers talking about, when I open up my Bible, this is what I read. It used to be far more common to see people with Bibles open in coffee shops. I used to see it more and more. Please don't feel I'm being rude today, and I'm not being a jerk, and I'm not trying to call anyone out. But my friends, the Bible is a gift from God. It is God giving us perspective on himself and what it means to live with each other. And for us to not read it, for us to let it get dusty, that is a crying shame. It is a crying shame. If we are going to be all that God has called us to be, and I want to be a church that God has called us to be. I want to be a church that makes a difference in Baldwinsville and beyond. I want to be a church that people know we are a place of hope. This is a place where restoration happens. That if people need to connect with the creator of the universe, it can happen through our church. And I believe that we need to be rooted in the Bible because that is rooted in the truth. And that, as we just read from Jesus, that brings a cleansing and that brings a pruning that we desperately need so we can be the individuals and the people that God has created us to be. Let me take a quick breath. Now in this analogy that Jesus is giving, the father's responsibility as he teaches is to be the gardener and that he's the one that's responsible for the pruning. The pruning is a slow and ongoing process, and it's done for a long-term gain. Now, one thing I read this week, and uh, this may surprise you, but I'm actually not an expert on farming. There are three stages of pruning, particularly back then in the first century with a vine like this. There are three stages. The first is that if you notice that there's a branch that's unhealthy, if you notice there's a branch that's not producing fruit, that's dead, that's drawing resources and drawing nutrition that the rest of the plant needs, The first thing you do is you just by hand snap it off. I literally, by hand, something not healthy, something not good, snap, gone. Now if you don't snap it off with your hand, if you don't snap it off literally with fingertips, then you have to go the next step because it will continue to grow. Even though it's not producing fruit, it will continue to grow and continue to cause problems. So the next step is you have to get the knife out. And if you don't get the knife out and you let it go, 
The only thing to do next, the third step, then you need the ax. Now, as we've read, the pruning is refining of our character. It's shaping our hearts. It's making us more and more into the people that God's called us to be. Preferably, we cooperate with the Father and he can gently pick it off. As he's trying to refine character, he's trying to shape our hearts and our minds. He's trying to turn us into the people he's called us to be and trying to get us to let go of destructive actions and destructive mindsets. Just letting him snap that off and so that we can grow into all he's called us to be. Best thing to do is cooperate and have him snap it off. If we're resistant, it's time to get the knife. Many of us can relate to this. Some lessons are very painful to learn. But if we have an area of unhealth in our lives, the loving Father is trying to prune, and we keep letting it grow, the removal process becomes harder and more painful. And eventually, eventually, if we resist the knife, eventually comes the ax. We've resisted the pruning by hand. We've refused to cooperate even with the knife. And then out comes the ax. When the roots or the branches have grown so strong, but for the sake of the fruit, they need to be removed, an ax is the only option left. The examples of this that came to my mind is when sin has been hidden and unrepentant for so long that it all dramatically comes to light. Sin being exposed can be painful. When the consequences of the terrible decisions suddenly explode, it's painful. Though I'm sure it doesn't feel like it in the time. It's a loving father trying to prune things that are destroying us and getting them out of our lives. Now, it's obvious that the best way to engage with the father as he's lovingly pruning us and refining our character, is full cooperation. You got something you need to snap off? Snap it off. Get it out. And Jesus told us that the word of God has the power to clean, which is why I'm adamant that taking the time to reflect on what the Bible teaches, reading the Bible for ourselves, taking the time, making it a priority, and then asking ourselves how we can implement this into our lives that by reading the Bible and reflecting on what it means, reflecting on what it says, that we're quick to learn the lesson instead of resisting and welcoming the knife or the ax, that we're quick to repent and quick to ask for forgiveness. We're going to ask for help when we need it. It's easy to let unhealthy things grow in our lives. It's easy to assume we don't need pruning. It's easy to justify our own actions or only listen to people who applaud our destruction. It's easy to let a bad decision become a habit. And it's easy to let a habit become an addiction. Being so full of shame, and then we hide in silence. And then, accidentally, all the dead things in our lives are eating up our energy, our time, our focus, and our energy. Resisting the pain of the knife typically means experiencing the ax. One of the authors I've already mentioned in this series is I've enjoyed studying around all this. There's a guy by the name of William Mounts. And something helpful I read this week that I wanted to share is that branches are pruned so they will become more fruitful. God's pruning is his gracious way of directing the flow of spiritual energy in order that his plans for our lives will be realized. While pruning is painful, it serves the necessary purpose of removing those branches that would otherwise absorb our time and energy in unproductive pursuits. He could do it by hand. If we resist, comes the knife. Knife is painful. What's even worse is when the ax comes. I hope that we are committed 
to let the God of the universe, the one who loves us more than we could ever describe, prune us, shape us, mold us, trusting that it's all motivated by the love he has for you and for I. But Jesus goes on in verse four, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Now the word remain here, other translations will say abide, but the word remain here, it's impossible to miss. In this chapter, the word remain is said 11 times. To remain is to persevere in keeping Jesus' commandments. And Jesus points to himself as the role model for remaining. He remains in us. Remain in me as I remain in you. He's pointing to himself as a role model. Jesus will stick with you through every single season. Jesus shows the ultimate dependability. He's consistent and present in every season. He stays and remains and abides with us. To remain is to not leave at the first sign of trouble. To remain is to not casually drift away like we spoke about last week. To remain is not chasing after new fashionable spiritual fads, but faithfully and loyally remaining with him. And we know this is true because we respect people that remain in the midst of really, really good reasons to give it all up. When we know somebody, another believer, and this may even be you today, but if you have decided that you are going to stick to God, your faith is going to be proven true, you are going to remain with him, even though life has given you really, really good reasons to give up, people admire that. We admire the resolve to remain in the face of adversity, in the face of unfairness, in the face of the life's toughest challenges for believers to say, you know what, I am sticking close to God no matter what. I am getting my roots deep down in Him. I am going to remain in Him. That is something that we will admire in someone else. We, re- we respect that when someone has that kind of faith that they will remain in Him. For a branch to bear fruit, it must share the life of the vine. For believers to bear fruit, they must remain in Christ. Now, we cannot be the people that God has created us to be without Jesus. Without the vine, the branch can do nothing. Without the gardener, the fruit will be subpar. The father and son working in unison to prune and shape our character. The passage here shows that all this will result in fruit. And fruitfulness is the true standard of Christianity. Other, way in the, uh, other places in the Bible, we're told to go and make disciples of all nations. We're told that you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. We're told to live peaceably with all people. Being fruitful is the whole point of this passage, is the true standard of Christianity, is that we are fruitful people. In verse 6, if you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown in the fire and burned. Branches that are separated from the vine... Branches that don't bear any fruit. It's awful to think about, but clearly this is a warning about eternity away from God. We, of course, call it hell. Hell is a reality taught in the Bible, that there is an eternity separated from God. Typically in the Bible, it's poetically explained as a fiery place that's full of torment. 
Hell is a complete absence of joy, peace, or goodness. It's important for us to understand that the bad news of hell is defeated by the good news of Jesus. It's not the will of the Father that any would perish, that any would be thrown in the fire. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I personally don't want to be driven or motivated by a fear of hell, but by the love of God who made a way for all who trust in him to spend an eternity with him. Hell is an awful reality, but it's important that we contrast it and what Jesus teaches here as he tells this awful truth about being thrown into the fire, the reality of hell that I hate thinking about. It goes on in verse 9 and gives a contrast that we cannot let go of. As the Father has loved you, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends. If you do what I command, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. Now in this passage, the word remain is said repeatedly again and again, but I wanted to get from this is that as awful as the reality of hell might be, the ability to be able to remain in the love of God is infinitely greater. The love of God is there for you and for I so that we can escape the torment of hell. I do not want to be a people that is driven by fear, but rather motivated by the love of God. In this passage, you'll also notice that there's repeated calls to obedience and loving others. Here's another great thought I read this week. Here as elsewhere in this gospel is a close relationship between love and obedience. Since love is an activity, self-sacrificial actions like those of Christ, it can be commanded. Believers abide in Christ's love by loving as Christ does. The vertical relationship to Christ is affected by the horizontal relationship to others. This is why, in another context, we are told in the Lord's Prayer that we may pray for forgiveness of sins only as we are forgiving others. Christ's love in believers' lives is meant to be shared with others. It is not meant to be kept as a private possession. Christ remained in the Father's love by keeping the Father's commandments. And the same applies in the relationship of the disciples to Christ. Love is self-sacrificial actions. We love as Christ loves us. We share in the love that he gives us. Our relationship with God is impacted by the way we love others. Love is not a private possession. And this is a strong call to obedience. And the promise is that we are no longer servants, but friends. When Jesus describes his relationship with the disciples as friends rather than servants, instantly Moses and Abraham come to mind. They are the only Old Testament characters to get such a designation. And both Moses and Abraham, they came up in week one of this series. Uh, feels like forever ago now. But these are arguably the two most revered figures in the Jewish scriptures. And people were upset that Jesus would compare himself to them. And now Jesus is pointing to them and comparing their relationship with God to the friendship he is promising his followers. And this is not a statement about the disciples or our holiness or status, but it's about the strength of our relationship. 
Once again, Jesus points to the Old Testament to bring understanding that Abraham and Moses have a friendship with God that we should want for ourselves, and now we're told we can have it as friends, not as servants. We're called to live in him as friends, and we're appointed to bear fruit that will last. Of course, a reasonable question is, what is the fruit of the vine? From this passage, Jesus' analogy, what is the fruit of the vine? Obedience, joy, love, and being a strong witness. If we are living in the vine, if we are connected to him, if we are drawing our life as believers from him, he is the vine, we are the branches, and his branches, if we're drawing our life from him, we can expect the fruit of our lives to be obedience, joy, love, and to be a witness. Obedience, we see this in verse 10, when you obey my commandments, you remain in my love. Joy, in verse 11, I have told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. Love, from verse 12, love each other in the same way I have loved you. And to be a witness, from verse 16, I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit. Staying connected to the vine, remaining in Jesus will increase my ability to obey him There's a promise of joy if I remain in Jesus. Not a temporary happiness, but true joy. There's a love that can define my heart and shape my thinking. And I can help others experience this joy for themselves as a witness. This is the outcome. This is the fruit of remaining in Jesus. Somehow love is both the fruit, the result or the outcome of remaining in Jesus and the commandment for remaining in Jesus. Essentially, you have to start loving people then you will love people more and more. But the important thing is to get started. Start being kind. Start extending trust to people and assuming the best instead of being cynical and negative. Start forgiving people even when they don't deserve it. Start praying for people who hate you. Just this last week, um, Annie Bullard, who's a wonderful member of our staff, uh, she was up to speak at our staff meeting. If you're not on our church podcast, definitely do so. If nothing else, uh, our staff meetings, um, the Devo that's given is shared on the podcast. And it's normally really great stuff. The staff do a wonderful job sharing stuff. But Annie was up this past week, and she talked about loving difficult people. And she didn't say it, but I read between the lines, and I knew she was talking about Mike Cheers. But... But Annie talked about the importance of loving difficult people and how there are some people that just grate you the wrong way. And you know what? It's just keep in mind with the love of God at the forefront is remember that broken people will act out in brokenness. That, you know, that start having love and it'd be amazing what happens. And I think that Annie hit the nail on the head. She didn't know that I was going to bring this up today, but she hit the nail on the head. We have to start. If we're going to love other people the way that Jesus commanded us to in this passage, we have to start. People that are difficult, people that rub us the wrong way, people that have given us loads and loads of reasons to reject. We have to start. Love other people. And in this passage, there are two moments where Jesus says that he will give us whatever we ask for. In verse 7, but if you remain in me and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want and it will be granted. And then in verse 16, I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit so that the Father will give you whatever you ask using my name. Now the temptation is to look at this as a promise that God will be our spiritual lottery ticket. That this is a guarantee that whatever we want is what God will give us. But the flow of the conversation and the broader picture of what Jesus is talking about, it shows that the promise that whatever we ask for, whatever we want, is the promise of more and more fruit, more and more obedience, more and more love for others, more and more joy, more and more ability to be a witness. 
This assumes, this promise that we will get whatever we ask, it assumes that the pruning is ongoing. The word changes what we want for. If we are engaging in the pruning, if we're letting the Father prune us and shape us and craft us, and we're becoming more and more like the people he called us to be, then what we want, what we ask for, will be in line with the fruit that he cares about because we will care about it, and that will be what we ask for. The whole point is the fruit. And the fruit is the outcome of effective prayer and being in step with the heart of God. Remaining in his love and being cleansed by his words means our fruitfulness becomes the goal. So what we're asking for and what we're praying for is shaped by wanting more and more of this fruit to be seen in our lives because we remain in him, because we have the word shaping our priorities, by the word shaping what we want, what we desire, and what our focus is. The fruit that God desires comes out of our lives. When what we ask is in sync with the heart of God, I believe we will be amazed at the answered prayers, that we will see more and more joy more and more love, obedience, and we will see strong witnesses for all that God is doing. A well-known part of this passage that we've likely heard many times is greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Now, deaths to save others were honored and respected in antiquity just like they are today. We recognize that someone giving their life to save another is an incredible act of heroism. But Jesus' death appeared like a giant failure. Jesus' death did not appear like something heroic. It appeared like the epitome of a disgrace. On the outside, there was absolutely no reason to think Jesus' death was heroic or noble at all. In fact, there were many reasons to think the opposite. Jesus was rejected by his own people. He was betrayed by one of his best friends, beaten and tortured by the Romans mocked and ridiculed by the soldiers, and then crucified, naked and ashamed. And this was all happening in public as a warning to passers-by that you don't tangle with the Roman Empire. He was then buried in a borrowed tomb while his disciples ran away in fear. Where's the victory? Where's the heroics? Why would anyone honor and respect this moment? Who can see anything noble or any sign of strength in this complete disgrace Why would the followers of this obscure rabbi from some forgettable town later declare that this is the greatest moment in all of history? Well, John the Baptist knew all the way back in John 1. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Comparing Jesus to the lambs used in sacrifice in the temple. These lambs that would ritually take on the sins of people so that their death, the lamb's sacrificial death, could cleanse those who brought the lamb and absolve them of guilt. The Samaritans knew in John 4, after the woman had told him to come and see Jesus, come and listen to him. Then they said to the woman, now we believe not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard him ourselves. Now we know that he is indeed the savior of the world. And to be the savior of the world, Jesus would need to solve humanity's biggest problem. And that would mean paying the price for sin once and for all. Jesus would then go on to explain to Pilate in this exchange, don't you realize this Pilate talking, that I have the power to release you or crucify you. Then Jesus said, you would have no power over me at all unless it were given to you from above. Despite how it looked, Jesus took on the sin of the world. This act of sacrifice would allow us to come to him as the savior of the world. And 
he went willingly. He was not overpowered. Matthew records Jesus telling Pilate that he could summon thousands of angels with a single word to rush to his defense. Jesus went willingly to the cross, took on the sins of the world so that we could be saved. This is the ultimate act of heroism. And Jesus is the only one able or qualified. And it was all driven and motivated by love. What looked like a humiliating, shameful defeat was the greatest victory humanity will ever know. The power of sin and death was conquered once and for all for anyone who places their faith and trust in Jesus. The power of hell was defeated by the love of God. Discipleship is not just a matter of acknowledging who Jesus is. It's having Jesus spiritually shaping our hearts and minds. It's engaging in that slow and ongoing pruning for a long-term gain. A few thoughts as perhaps be helpful this week. The first thing is embrace the pruning. Something to gather from this passage, something that will be helpful for us as we wake up tomorrow morning, as we go about our week. Embrace the pruning. Jesus taught in this passage that it's the word that cleans. Don't neglect Bible reading or prayer. Treat God's word as something that has the power to change your life. Take it seriously, rise to the challenge. Have the humility to recognize that when you disagree with what God says, it's not him that needs to change his mind. Embrace that pruning is both inevitable and for your good. Don't resist so that pruning by hand turns to pruning with a knife. And hopefully, it never comes to the ax. Trust that the Father prunes because he loves us. Remain in him. Follow Jesus' example and remain. Remain in him. Stay close. If it's ever right to follow Jesus, it's always right to follow Jesus. Make a determination that your faith is the kind of faith that is going to endure through every season life throws at you. Have your eyes wide open that life will give you really, really good reasons to abandon faith and decide you're going to be the person that sticks close, that you will remain. Acknowledge that it is deceptively easy to drift from following Jesus and remain in Him. And lastly, love each other. Love each other. We have been shown indescribable love by the Lord God Almighty. It is only reasonable that we commit to showing that love to others. This matters so much to Jesus that He commands this of His followers. God's love for us was costly and unselfish. Loving people will put us at multiple crossroads. We could win the argument, or we can love people. We could make life easy for ourselves, or we can love people. We can push people out of the way to advance our ambitions, or we can love people. We can ignore the hurts and needs of those around us, or we can love people. We can isolate ourselves from people who disagree with us, or we can love people. We can complain day and night about all the terrible things happening in the world, or we can love people. John 15, 17, this is my command, love each other. A couple of questions for you. You wanna go ahead and write these down. Perhaps take a moment to think about this this week, pray and reflect. Where can you observe the fruit Jesus is teaching about in your life? Where can you observe the fruit Jesus is teaching about in your life? 
the fruit of obedience or joy or love and being a strong witness? Where is that fruit evident in your life? Second question, what should we do to ensure we remain in him? What can we do to turn this from theory into practice? That we remain, that we would look back 10 years from now and would see a decade's worth of remaining close in him, a decade's worth of pruning and God refining our hearts and our minds, refining our character. What should we do to ensure we remain in him? I invite everyone here to stand. We're going to go back into a time of worship. I'm going to pray before we do. Maybe you stand with me. Lord, I hope you take something from this. Lord, you use it to grab a hold of someone's heart. You use it to minister to somebody and encourage, give a challenge. Whatever it is that you want to say to your people, Lord, I pray that you do it. And Lord, the, the words of Tom Wood would fade to the background but your words would stick close. Your words would grab a hold of our hearts. You would shape our mindsets. You'd shape our thinking. Lord, maybe even now that there's pruning that you're doing in people's hearts. Lord, we lift up this service to you. We lift up this time. We believe you're gonna minister. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen, amen. Come on, everyone, let's have some time of worship together. Come on, church, we're going to respond in song to the message this morning. Sing worthy. Worthy of every song you could ever sing. Worthy of all the praise you could ever bring. God, you're worthy of every breath you could ever we live for you, yeah, 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 yeah. Jesus, the name above every other name. Jesus, the only one who could ever say. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe, we live for you. God, I'm living for your glory. We're singing, holy, there is no one like you. There is none beside you. Open up my eyes in wonder. Show me who you are and fill me with your heart and You guys sound great. And worthy of all the praise we could ever bring. 
our prayer this morning. I will build my life upon your love. It is a firm foundation. I will put my trust in you alone, God, and I will not be shaken. I will never be shaken. Sing it out. And I will build my life upon your love. It is a firm foundation. And I will put my trust
take to remain in him. And maybe that first step for some of you is making the decision to follow Jesus. Maybe that is your first step. We're singing this song, we're talking about a firm foundation. And maybe you don't know what it's like to have a firm foundation. Maybe life feels a little bit all over the place. I can tell you this morning that Jesus wants to be that firm foundation for you. He is the firm foundation. He wants you to remain in him. There's all these things that accompany when we remain in him. There's peace. There's joy. There's love. There's hope. All of these things that accompany and those things are missing from your life and you haven't made that decision today. Decision yet. Today is the day. We're going to go ahead and we're going to close our eyes and bow our heads this place. There are already decisions happening online right now. So if you're online with us and you're joining, we also want to extend this to you. But if that's you this morning and you are thinking to yourself, I haven't made that decision yet. But yes, I need to figure out who my firm foundation is, that my firm foundation cannot rest on me. It rests on Jesus. If that's you this morning, if you want to go ahead while everybody's eyes are closed and heads are bowed and raise your hand. If you're online, you want to click that raise hand button. We want to pray with you. If you're in person with me, I'm going to start just looking across the room so I know who I'm praying for. I'm going to look to my right, to your left, and I'm just going to make my way across the room. And if that's you and you would say, Megan, I want you to pray with me today. And go ahead and raise your hands. I'm just looking across the room right now. Yep. I see you. Yep. Right. I'm in the center of the room. Pretty I can pray for. I'm to the left of the room. I'm going to make my way back across the room. I don't want to miss you. That's you. I would love nothing more than to pray with you this morning. Anybody else I can pray with? Yep. I see you. All right. All right, church, we're going to go ahead. We're going to pray this prayer. The words are going to be behind me on the screen. And we're going to pray this out loud. We're going to pray this together. So here we go. Lord Jesus, I believe you died for me. I want to follow you. I invite you to be Lord of my life. Help me follow you every day. I want to leave my old life of sin behind and heal my broken relationship with God. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, can we celebrate? We celebrate people making the most important decision that they'll ever make.